0: Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host Tronar Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 85 of the podcast, the topic is the origins and future of open science. Our guest is George Strong, computing policy Nestor. In this conversation, we investigate the decisions that turned ARPANET into the global internet and the first ISP via educational institutions. We discuss the rise and fall and rise again of the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House, the role of the national academies in the US and abroad, the path towards open science with open access, preprint servers, and why big science publishers resisted. George muses on the role of science and data in the next decade.
1: George, how are you today? Good day. I'm very well and hope you are too.
0: Yeah, it's an excellent day to talk about uh, history Uh, and future. I agree. Yeah. Look, uh, George, you have quite an illustrious career spanning a few decades of internet development from way back when there was no internet. I wanted you to take us a little bit on a very important journey because where we are headed today, and where we were some 30 or more years ago, um, they are pretty interesting junctures in time. And I wanted to you to kind of reminisce a little bit uh, about the beginning of the Internet, but also the, specifically the beginning of open science, The the deci- decisions you were part of that turned ARPANET into something, I guess, you know, history says far greater than you imagined, but maybe you had already imagined it. Can you bring us back to that time and give us a sense of, well, first of all, just explain what your role was and and give us a sense of what was the mood back then and what did people think this animal, the ARPANET, was going to be?
1: With pleasure. Uh, I'll mention before that that this happens to be the 60th year of my involvement in the IT industry, so actually only the last half of my uh, career has been specifically internet-focused. It was at a university in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s and was involved with various networking activities. Not ARPANET because there were only a few wealthy universities that were on the ARPANET. Uh, But we developed some local things. I actually spent a year with a computer networking startup in 1970. We developed other things. By the mid-'80s, the computer science community was moving toward Using the TCP/IP protocols regularly uh, because uh, the latest version of Berkeley Unix had TCP/IP in it. I was chairing the computer science department at that time, so we immediately started using TCP/IP on our Berkeley VAX, Uh, and, um, and then shortly thereafter, NSF announced a program to create the NSFNET which would use the TCPIP protocols and take it from a very important experiment to a larger network uh, connecting U.S. research universities to the new supercomputing centers that uh, NSF was standing up.
0: Judge, I I just wanted to stop you. Back in the days, as you recall it, was there anyone that had the idea of this becoming something different than just connecting more, more and more researchers. And 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 just also, even just that as an objective, what did you envision was going to happen over that network?
1: Well, we had uh, the best of all possible worlds in that I'm sure that our most leading visionaries knew that this could be a very important development in the future. At that point, there was no universal network. That is, if you had IBM computers, you used IBM networks. If you have digital equipment computers, you'd use digital equipment uh, networks and so forth. And so incompatibility reigned uh, cylinders of excellence, as we'd like to say. Because of DARPA's uh, extraordinary vision in the early 60s, Realizing that uh, we really ought to have universal connectivity, um, we we could see that this ought to be important sometime in the future. I think most of us thought it would take longer to become important than it did. But uh, the other side of the coin is that we had a very specific need to connect 100 research universities to five supercomputing centers. And therefore, getting the political will and the money to do such a limited project was much easier than saying we were going to change the world. Most people don't believe you when you say you're going to change the world.
0: That's fascinating to say that you had somehow created this need because I I want to just very briefly bring us back to kind of COVID days and, and the last year. I guess when you create a need like that for remote collaboration which this was right an enormous computing infrastructure stuck in in a few locations and the fact that these research universities were distributed uh, just but but even just the audacity of of saying that that was going to be possible surely even just a few years before that actually happened were there doubters back then i mean i'm not asking you to out them but surely this can't have been Extremely easy because it was a research effort, very much right in the early days. It wasn't like this was crystal clear to everyone that it was all going to work this way.
1: Correct, it really was a uh, research oriented infrastructure development. In fact, supercomputing was playing the primary role. A high level com- committee in the United States had complained that both Europe and Japan. Were giving their faculty members more access to supercomputing in the US and that's how the uh, it ultimately amounted in legislation directing NSF to create supercomputing centers and sort of at, at the end of that report I said oh by the way you ought to also create a network so that people at those universities don't have to go to the supercomputing centers for all their interactions hmm. uh, at that time ARPANET was very experimental. Uh, digital Equipment's DECnet was pretty operational, and there were some people who said, "Oh, we really ought to use DECnet because it's uh, it's proven itself, it's operational, it's commercially supported." The ob- obvious other argument: Yes, but it limits you to Digital Equipment computers. Uh, so there was quite a um, a discussion in the mid 1980s at NSF about what. What to do, a final decision was made, and I would say it was a risky decision at that point, to use TCPIP due to its universality. And then we proceeded from the uh, mid-80s to the mid-90s to make it work.
0: Well, I'm fascinated by that because, you know, I know that you have a longstanding interest and obviously experience in interoperability. And it seems to me that at several junctures during this, internet history, there were choices that could have been made to arguably kind of close it off to people with only a specific type of equipment and by that token, either a certain socioeconomic group or a certain professional group or or even an elite group of universities. Why do you think it was possible uh, to win through or do you think it was almost luck that that decision was made at the end of the day?
1: Well, I think the whole history is strewn with luck, uh, as the old saying goes. It's better to be lucky than smart, and it turns out at every point, decisions that were made were made uh, to favor openness as opposed to favor close closedness. That is, soon after we be, we had um, uh, put the hundred research universities on the network. Uh, Many people were saying, at least quietly, you know, networking is going to be important for much more than supercomputing access. And so NSF launched a program to encourage the rest of higher education in the United States to also connect to the Internet. The Internet had been designed very um, appropriately in that it's a, it was a three-tiered network, the NSFNet backbone, which stretched from coast to coast, and then regional networks. There were seven or eight or nine regional networks around the country because uh, each one had a few research universities in it. But then NSF gave awards to other universities and colleges to connect to those regional networks. And the regional networks were anxious to uh, expand their membership to pay their costs. They did that. The other colleges and universities began to connect. By the time I went to NSF as the NSFnet program officer in 1991, there were, uh, oh, say at least 500 colleges and universities already on the network. But even more amazing in my mind was that in 1991, already, there were about the same number of private sector companies on the regional networks just watching to see what would happen to keep their eye on this. So in my regard, I think the commercialization of the NSFnet began in 1991 as opposed to 1995 when we retired the NSFnet and the commercial providers took over entirely.
0: Well, um, and that brings us, uh, you know, uh, eventually it's going to bring us to, to our contemporary days, uh, because there is this constant, I guess, oscillation between, you know, public and private interest, and you can't really build something as important and big as, as the internet without the collaboration of, of many, many different actors. But, uh, bring us, bring us then. So we are now in the early nineties and, um. Tell me about how science is doing generally throughout this period, because you know, we are talking here about the origins also of open science. Was yeah. science a shared reality among, well, obviously among these research universities and then the US government at that time was, uh, I guess you could characterize it as it was in a heyday and optimism, or there were tasks that the government really trusted science to do. How did that evolve in this period?
1: Well, open science meant something entirely different in the 1990s than it means today. In fact, it meant in the 1990s about the same thing that it meant uh, since the uh, 17th century when the Royal Academy in Britain suggested that scientists publish their articles rather than keeping them private. Uh, So open science meant then, and of course still means to degree today, When you have results, publish them in peer reviewed journals so that other people may see those results and build upon them for their next contributions to science. Uh, There wasn't enough data, and certainly the data was not interconnected well without the Internet. So, open science did not involve data or other artifacts, it was still uh, openness meant openness of publication and nothing else.
0: Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And we'll, we'll get to the role of data soon enough. Uh, but you, you have had more than a, a little share of this uh, experience around the national academies, certainly in the U.S., so... If I look into the history of the National Academies, there, what, the first one, I guess, was started in 1863, and then they kind of rolled on. There was another one in 64, and then in 1970, I don't have exactly the, the names of w- which of these academies started when. But you, uh, at some point uh, in your career, have, have been in and out of the National Academies. What kind of an institution is that, and how important have they been to science overall?
1: I think quite important. Uh, when I retired from NSF in uh, 2015, I uh, took uh, my retirement job, quote unquote, at the National Academy. Uh, sciences was first, and then engineering and medicine were added in the later days. So now right, it's, uh, right, right,
0: that's what I was referring to. So 1863, 1964, and 1970.
1: Perfect. That's right. Uh, the original goal, of course, was to give the government access to scientific expertise when they ask for it regarding uh, projects and, and future of science and so forth. Uh, my opinion, it's been extremely important over the course of my career at professional meetings uh, around the country uh, speakers would stand up and say, "I recommend that you look at this new report from the National Academy of Sciences, which I think is very important and which is going to direct the future of science in in this way or that way or whatever." So the ability, actually, the academy has two goals. It's honorific in that the top scientists, engineers, and medical people are elected to the national academies, and then it's the other is the working opportunity to collect not only those members, but also other distinguished members of the science, et cetera, communities to produce reports that uh, will be important to direct the future of uh, scientific enterprise and engineering and medicine.
0: Yeah, it's a curious and, uh, you know, obviously historically a very important institution. I do feel that, you know, starting with my generation and younger, it, it hasn't really had the kind of visibility that makes us to look at these academies as other things than almost like historical uh, anachronisms, uh, which is kind of strange, I find. How do you explain that the academies have such a low profile comparatively? I mean, there there are, of course, famous scientists so today, but I wouldn't say they're famous because they're recognized as members of one of the academies. So maybe I'm wrong about this, but they don't seem to have the kind of public profile that they must have had you know, in the early years?
1: Well, I'm not so sure that the uh, profile has changed. It is a low-key uh, organization. I think that for any um, scientist, engineer, or medical researcher who is a member of the academy, you would find that that is definitely features prominently on their biographies. Uh, sure. It's a great honor, and if they're applying for another job or whatever, it would feature prominently. Mm-hmm. uh it might even be mentioned if there's a public uh, relations activity uh, about a contribution somebody has just been just made they would probably include oh and they're also a member of the national academy of sciences so,
0: yeah i was i guess more talking about the institutional power but then maybe that's also my ignorance you know yeah, like real. you pointed out, you know, in the, the Royal Society, right, 1660, we're talking here, the first scientific journal, Philosophical Transactions, you know, five years later, those were grand statements. They were firsts, right? It was the first journal. People didn't know what a journal was. It hadn't existed, I guess, uh, you know, until Correct. that point. Um, well, then bring us up to up to today. And uh, so so these academies in the U.S., so starting 1970, we had the, the, the last one sort of come, come on board. Um, what has happened then with uh, both sort of the, the academies as institutions and then kind of the public endorsement of science? I know you were also involved with the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House, which I believe is an institution uh, that started in 1976. Tell me what, what, what happened to that institution.
1: Uh, OSTP is still there. It uh, tends to have more prominence with uh, Democrat administrations and somewhat less prominent with Republican administrations, but it does continue on. Uh, For example, Republican administrations may not add to the director of OSTP to the title uh, President Science Advisor. Democrats always add President Science Advisor, and this year President Biden, in fact, has raise that to a cabinet position. So now the director of OSTP is a cabinet member as well as a science advisor. Let me comment just one minute further on the uh, profile that you were talking about. Remember, the original goal um, that uh, Lincoln signed into office was to create an entity that would give the government advice on uh, scientific matters. So that's often a Let's say a a low key, not necessarily a high public visibility, but we write reports that many times are very influential in the government's determining what scientific programs to put forward. So uh, uh, things like uh, accepting uh, supercomputing as important, accepting networking. I mean, since the internet, there have been several National Academy reports talking about the importance of the internet and these influence government programs and and government legislation. So uh, it may be publicly a rather quiet activity, but from a policy standpoint, I think it has been and remains quite influential.
0: Yeah, no, I I accept that point. So as we are then moving more towards the the later 90s and the early 2000s, bring us in on, on, on what then starts to happen in open science and how this new group of, uh, by this time, fairly influential science publishers, so this new group that we haven't talked about yet, starts to emerge on the scene with uh, obviously not just one journal, but a plethora of journals, and there starts to become a business model around publications that uh, starts to take some prominence. How how would you describe that movement and, uh, and what is happening to it now?
1: Well, of course, the first business model around scientific publications is around paper journals. And that has been in existence for several hundred years, Uh, 17th and 18th century, fairly small number of journals, 19th and 20th, an exploding number. After World War II, a huge number of journals as the whole academy uh, uh, expanded very very greatly. As soon as the internet came on the scene, people could see, oh, wait, we need to have electronic versions of the journals, not just paper versions. Uh, This was a, um, I think it's fair to say, a conundrum for the traditional science publishers, who by this point are an important industry worldwide and uh, an important lobbying influence with governments, uh, because they could see their uh, subscription. Journal's model of financing uh, under threat. Right. And so so I would say um, we are just now emerging from um, uh, an extended um, battle uh, where the publishers by and large are accepting that things are changing because of the internet. Uh, You in Europe have uh, know that even better than we because Europe has been taking a lead in terms of uh, national efforts to um, break the subscription model uh, to journals and moving, moving forward into an, an internet-based model. Um, it's, um, and, and, and It raises the whole question of what is the future of scholarly communication. If you've got enough disk storage, enough computing power, enough, enough networking connectivity, all of a sudden you can all of a sudden you can think about, well, is the article the only thing we should be publishing? Should we be publishing our data? Should we be publishing our workflow methodology and other aspects? In other words, in this new century, the idea has dawned on people that all outputs, all science outputs, data, articles, software, you name it, can be and should be published because it will give other scientists, again, more to stand on as they reach for the, the next level of, of uh, development.
0: So There are a bunch of terms here that were hotly and are, I guess, still hotly debated. Although, like you pointed out, in Europe, the, the grand bargain seems to have been somewhat struck Open access. How do you explain that term? It, it is so, somewhat hijacked. Also, uh, you know, it, it can have a, do- a lot of different meanings.
1: Yes, And it then, can. very,
0: very lately, the uh, the concept of a preprint. Has gotten. I mean, certainly with COVID, it became something almost on everybody's mind. If you were, you know, interested in what was happening, everybody was reading these preprint articles. But first of all, the notion of open access—how how old is that notion? I mean, does it was it born with the early internet?
1: Uh, I think so. Um, the um, and as you say, it has many definitions. So it's probably best to give a definition and then see if we. Uh, if that's useful um, what in the US and I suspect worldwide what we said is if if a scientific resource is available for open access that means that you the user who wants that information has to provide for yourself an internet accent and beyond that access to the resource data articles whatever should be free quote unquote. We know that those are, expensive to maintain but um, if the uh, if the expenses can be borne by other models then you greatly expand the reach uh, to uh, le- to non research intensive universities to uh, countries around the world etc uh, you really do have open access just like was the original 17th century goal it's just now you have access many, many more people have access to much, much more resource.
0: Right. So preprints, Ah. what what would you... Well, when did that originate? You know, these preprint, the electronic preprints seem to me a very recent invention, but the the notion of circulating drafts is, of course, not new.
1: Well, um, surprisingly, just like when the... um, Internet went public in 1995 after NSFnet was retired and the private sector took over. Uh, It was just at that time that the public at large became aware of the Internet and had no idea that its development had been going on for 30 years. And The situation is similar with preprints because that concept and the first preprint server was developed in the early 90s, 30 years ago.
0: That's incredible. That was news oh, even to me. I would never have thought that that was that early.
1: Yeah, Paul Ginsberg, a uh, physicist who was at Los Alamos Laboratory at that time and subsequently moved to Cornell University, uh, approached the physics journals and of the National Physic, uh, the Physics Society and said, I'd like to put up this preprint server and I'd like you to agree that that does not constitute prior publication, and therefore, that articles on the server should still be available for publication after peer review in your journals. Uh, to the great credit of the Physics Society, they accepted that suggestion. And so Archive, the original Archive, spell A-R-K-I-V-E, was stood up in the early 90s, immediately took off in popularity in physical sciences and was expanded somewhat to uh, a few other disciplines. Now we have bioarchive and other types of archives coming up. Uh, I think this was um, one of the seminal developments. And as you see, it was a policy development that was uh, uh, orchestrated first by the American Physical Society that enabled that. Uh, and um, and so so for thirty years, scientists have been able to pre-publish their articles, getting a peer review uh, informal peer review from the community at large. They also uh, show their priority by the date that they put it in the uh, in the the preprint server. Um, and there's an article. Articles appear in the. Um, science magazine from time to time, which describes it. Uh, so any scientist will say, well, I go into the office in the morning, I look in archive to see if anything new has been published in my area. After that, I go to the lab and start working, knowing that I have done the lit- all the literature review that I have to. So uh, greatly improved the activities of individual scientists. Get the results out there sooner, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I consider this uh, to be one of the seminal uh, a- advances, as I say, thirty years ago in the direction of open science.
0: So it strikes me as you're talking that so much of the development that we come to call science, or you know, we learn as individual science results, they are shaped by this interplay between government regulation. And, uh, you know, obviously funding, which is an aspect we haven't talked so much about, but but also private sector and these institutions and these decisions that, you, you know, professional academic societies make and, and these trade-offs. So there's nothing here that's given. There's no such thing that there's no, there doesn't seem to be a necessary path that science has taken. It seems like they were all decisions all along.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, that's another example of better being lucky than smart. Although I would say that the American Physical Society was smart uh, and ahead of their time in making that decision to permit pre publication of articles that would subsequently occur in their journals. Uh, but every time there are, everything is, in my experience, everything is contingent, nothing preset. You go down a line, all of a sudden, uh, using the military term, there's a salient where if you move forward in that direction, you can make more progress than you expected the day before, etc.
0: Bring us into the mindset of w- what might be a big science publisher today, like a Reed Elsevier, Taylor & Francis, Wiley Blackwell, Springer, Sage, I mean, you name it, these are maybe the top five. You You could sort of understand, though, how they if they have built a business on the on the back of kind of one basic business model that sells either subscriptions or sort of content based access it it doesn't make sense rationally for them to fully just let that go because history is not on their side or something how how has this battle been would you say and and w- where does the path lead for actors who are in that position that they have built up their their legacy around the business model that perhaps now, you know, for the good for the greater good of society, needs to adapt quite significantly.
1: Well, and publishers are just one example. Any industry that has a given business model that is successful will resist major changes. Um, Patrick Winston, in a book um, some years ago. Quoted the line that the status quo always resists the revolutionary potential of a new technology. So uh, the telecommunication industry resisted the potential of the internet, uh, and because it changed the future of how telephone and other telecommunications in the US and now the world operate. So if they had realized that such a change was going to happen, I think they might have exercised some lobbying capability to keep the internet from emerging as it did. Uh, Since it did emerge under government uh, uh, supervision and funding, they probably would have had power to say, you really shouldn't be doing that. That's a private sector activity. That's what's happened for the last 20, 30 years in uh, publishing. The breakthrough was uh, at the uh, U.S. National Academy, uh, or at the U.S. uh, uh, National uh, Institutes of Health. Uh, When Harold Varmus was director of the Institutes of Health in the 1990s, he launched an effort specifically in the biomedical activities, saying the public has paid for this research, the public should be able to see it. Uh, the, the journals were, of course, dead set against it, but because of uh, everyone feels that public he- that health is an important idea, and that was a successful way to um, uh, approach it from a political standpoint. And eventually, the federal government stood behind uh, NIH's decision to uh, force biomedical articles into an open access regime. Subsequently, when I was at OSTP, as a matter of fact, then uh, the White House came forward with a, a requirement to the agencies to do the same thing for other literature beyond biomedical, all scientific literature, and, most revolutionary, they added to that the requirement and data. Not only the articles but and the data ought to be publicly available
0: yeah we'll get to the data uh, right now. I just wanted to ask you one thing so it's it it seems to me in these discussions many times one kind of sloppily assumes that just because one business model dies, you know that all business models die, but that's not the case at all with open science. You're just shifting shifting the way information flows doesn't mean that there's not money in science. I guess it's just um it becomes for the publisher, they, they have to take on a different role. But, but in some ways, it empowers the scientists and the institutions behind science to, to charge for their work just in, in, in more ways than, uh, than one,
1: right? Yeah. This is an expensive enterprise, and there are certain expenses that are reduced with internet dis- distribution. You save a few forests, you save some mailing expense, you save space in the libraries around the research universities, so there are savings. Uh, the, the the real advances, though, are the broader access uh, to this information in the world, uh, and we are still wrestling with what are the right business models. First of all, the expenses should be lowered, so uh, finding a less expensive business model ought to be uh, available on, and that that is is not a happy news to the uh, publishing industry because if it's less expensive to produce the product, you don't need uh, as big a revenue source as you had before. Um, this happened in telecommunications, beginning in the eighties, where AT and T uh, let go tens of thousands of employees as new methods in um, uh, telecommunications were less labor intensive, so any time automation moves into a field, uh, unemployment follows. I'm sorry to say, and in fact, one of my concerns is uh, as we move forward in the future, how many jobs are going to be left, and what are we going to do with the people who are permanently unemployed? That's obviously a topic for a different day, but I think it's an some people have said that may be the most important problem of the 21st century.
0: Well, so that is a larger issue. Um, let's let's uh, hold on that discussion for a second, because I wanted to get to your data point, uh, and, and, but also this notion of science 2.0, and per- potentially that the two of them are slightly related. When, when people speak about science 2.0, what are they talking about is it just open science which we have been talking about now or is it something more
1: uh that's a good question it turns out that's not a term that's been uh, widely used in the united states so I can't it might be, be a
0: sure. european term yeah, for, I, for yeah
1: i can't be sure what the definition is i would ha- hazard the guess that yes it means publishing all uh science outputs not just journals journal articles Right. Um, So,
0: so tell me more about your notion of data because I know you're keenly aware of the importance of of data. In you know, as opposed to just publishing the the article uh, about the data. Tell me how that is evolving and how you think it will evolve. You know, with the role of science and data as we move into the next decade that we you know have begun with a bang here.
1: Yes, Um, I think the last. Twenty-five years, let's say, have been network-centric because of the emergence of the internet, and then the emergence of huge application providers on the internet, such as Google, Amazon, Facebook, etc., uh, has made it central to the economy in uh, good ways and bad, of course, as uh, as the uh, Fake truth and uh, conspiracy theories have have proven that, uh, that all all powerful technologies can be used for ill as well as for good. But um, uh, the last twenty five years has focused on um, this great thing called the internet that has interconnected the world. The next twenty five years will be focused on data, uh, in the same sense that the last twenty five years was focused on on the internet, Um, I I like to whimsically describe three eras of computing. The first era of computing was for isolated computers uh, before the internet. The second era of computing, which we're in right now, is connected computers but uh, data sets that are not interoperable. So The computers are interoperable, but the data on the computers are not interoperable. Um, Some years ago, one of the networking companies uh, had a marketing slogan which said, the network is the computer. Well, it, it certainly is now, right? When you use an app that's connecting not only your computer, it's connecting the server computers, et cetera. The network is the computing resource you're using. Uh, so we we now live in an era of one computer but multiple uh, data sets that are not interoperable. In the future, the ideal world will be one computer and one data set, in the sense that if all the data sets in science or beyond that are interoperable, then the ability to combine data from different areas becomes immediately uh, much easier. And much more progress will be uh, will be available. Uh, so, um, well, that's a is-
0: fascinating vision, uh, George. Because I see, you know, immediate applications, and of course, so do the the Facebooks of the world, right? Because in in essence, you could, you know, if you just uh, mention health and think, you know, the kind of coordination you could do if you had a global data set on any. Individual aspect, or or thousands of aspects of, of, of all human beings. What you could do with that, but but it of course goes beyond health, uh, you know, and in, into just
1: everything other
0: science, everything. any that's, observations, the environment, right. right? All of the coordination problems that we have been plagued with,
1: and commercial activity as well as scientific activity. So uh, it is a, a great goal. It's not easy. Uh, and by the way, I don't think it'll be done by one data set somewhere on subtopic. Some the goal is to still have billions of data sets, but have the the metadata and the other activities that permit interoperability between the data stored different places in different formats. Can we but come? But this to seems
0: to me, George, to be also a very significant regulatory challenge because we currently don't really have international jurisprudence, right, that is capable of setting mandatory interoperability requirements for things like health, right? If if, if we were to say uh, every person has the right or, you know, the UN Charter defines some of these things that the, uh, people have the right to information about certain things and, and, and to be free. Uh, but if you really think about it, to be free these days is to have information. Um, exactly
1: right. Exactly right. right. and uh, The goal will be to do as much of this bottom-up as possible as opposed to by top-down regulation. The ideal, which probably isn't achievable, is that uh, we develop the technology and, subsequently, the laws and regulations which support developing interoperability interfaces let's say between different uh, data sets and um, and and people realize the benefit uh, i think we the the, uh, the pandemic has given us an interesting and, and that's that's too mild a word uh, a wake up call that the world could have responded much better had data been interoperable at this point now many sure. of my coll- many of my colleagues have been spending this uh, Uh, virus time, pushing interoperable standards so that when, not if, but when the next pandemic hits, we should be in better shape with interoperable data that will enable a more uh, vigorous scientific response to uh, to the technical issues.
0: But how can one do that in the current regulatory environment where, you know, even in a US sort of resurgent uh, democratic administration with a lot more ambition you know, on the global scene than the previous administration, we are moving into a world where arguably in some domains there are no superpowers, or, or if there are, it's a multipolarity. And it's not even clear that governments, I would say, are the superpowers anymore, right? There's private actors and there's obviously illicit activity and networks that also have considerable power how can you still be so faithful that a bottom-up type initiative, one, would be realistic, two, would even go in the direction that you want it to go. So I'm sort of thinking about some of the social movements of recent t- time that it's not very clear to see that all of those social movements are necessarily kind of promulgating the public good. So y- in other words, there's there's nothing to me um, in nature that would mean that we would all kind of converge around interoperability. It is a decision to make and it does have, there are always losers in
1: interoperability, right? Absolutely. Um, But I guess, again, I'll appeal to history and say that I have seen it work in the past and I think it has a better chance of working in the future than a top-down solution. Uh, Take the internet, again, as an example. At the time the internet was emerging, um, the uh, nations of the world had already agreed, including the US, had already agreed by treaty regulation to the uh, Open Science Interconnect, OSI, which was going to be a network to do what the internet was already doing. So that was the de jure network of the time. Uh, and as our use of TCPIP went forward, we had to always say, as soon as OSI is available, we will convert everything to it. Uh, so, uh, Internet was a, the de facto solution. We were waiting for the de jure solution. Of course, the progress on the Internet turned out to be so rapid that we, in effect, disregarded the de jure solution, and OSI became a uh, uh, feature of history rather than something we were marching marching forward. And again, that began in the U.S. By the way, I I see more activity on data in Europe than in the um, U.S., so it's conceivable to me that uh, Europe might have the lead in data the same way that the U.S. had the lead in the Internet. Or who knows whoever. Like you say, it's a multipolar world. China is on the march. We could see something develop there as well. So a bottom-up thing will probably develop within a within a, a, a given G, um geopolitical domain, whether it's Europe or the U.S. or China or someplace else, and if it turns out to be tremendously successful, as the Internet was, then it starts by osmosis going to the rest of the world. I mean, uh, The rest of the world eventually accepted that the Internet was the, uh, the way to interconnect computers, and other efforts were, uh, were uh, shut down. I expect that we'll see, if somebody makes similar great progress in, inter- in interoperable data sets in one area and other areas, find it and say, oh, we could use that, too. And then it begins again from a, a distributed… I mean, it's much better to boil a lake than to start out boiling the ocean. right? Uh, in a global solution is boiling the ocean if a smaller, more special-purpose activity allows for the development of a suitable technology, then it grows uh, organically from the bottom up. I've seen that work more, more often than not, and so my faith is that that uh, is probably the way to bet on for the future for data.
0: Well, that's that certainly sounds wise to me. So I, I wanted to bring up this that in more ways than one, you are a distance runner. So you told me you've run an estimated fifty-five thousand miles. That's only a computer scientist could could have measured that their total miles in a in a <laughs> lifetime. Uh, you've been an academic computer scientist and went on to become an administrator and an NSF, uh, uh, you know, employee, and you have been c- uh, CIOs of OSDP and in charge of interagency efforts. And uh, and then heavily involved on this academic, uh, you know, the academies and, and coordination, various networks. What is your best advice as a long distance runner for people who maybe haven't had the benefit of that distance that you have run? What are the initiatives that matter if you're going to get involved in the d- debates that we have been surfacing today on this podcast? What are the networks where this is happening? Where should people go to even just start to grasp the enormity of the challenges ahead of us for science and for the internet and for the, I guess,
1: the planet? Well, thank you for that uh, far-reaching question. Uh, I do think um, running has something to do with it because I like to say these developments are a marathon, not a sprint. Um, They are going to take a long time. They're going to require endurance. If you start out too fast, you're going to wind yourself and end up not finishing. So, preparing for a long haul, either on the race course or on the uh, data uh, course, uh, is is appropriate. Um, the uh, the one thing that uh, is different, I would say, in the data than was in the networking world, in the networking history. The private sector computer companies were focused on their own clientele and focused on vendor lock in, right? They didn't want to connect other vendors' computers to their networks. Uh, and therefore, the action, the far far seeing action of the US government to uh, provide a universal solution was extremely important. Uh, although I'm not sure every uh, computer company would tell you that they, they liked that solution. Um, And now uh, we find that there are private sector players that are very actively involved in data uh, and general data. Uh, Just let me take one example of Google. Google has a a huge uh, project called Knowledge Networks, uh, or Knowledge Graph, I think they call it. So the Google Knowledge Graph is, in fact, a, a way to format data which is quite. Compatible and uh, useful in open science activities and in other types of activities. Uh, other private sector companies are also uh, uh, marching forward in this area. So the, the difference is that uh, now the private, there's probably, probably a case can be made that the private sector is ahead of the public sector in terms of utilizing advanced forms of data. So we have to be careful in the public sector to uh, stand on the coattails of what has already been done in the private sector as opposed to thinking we have to start from scratch when uh, I think the private sector has played the role that DARPA played in the networking directions and now we have to make sure that we form a a new form of public-private partnership. Uh, In the internet, the thing that made it work was, was... excellent forms of public-private partnership we need new forms of public-private partnership to bring this off. I mean our goal is to make sure that whatever is developed by the private sector supports the goals of science as well as uh, public search and game playing and so on and so forth. So a closer alliance with the private sector which brings its own difficulties of course uh, but but still I think that's that's something I would watch very closely for the future.
0: That sounds very wise to me. So I, I hear from you, uh, the long-distance runner, a kind of a cautious optimism that some bottom-up, and you know, the, the notion of bottom-up is complicated here because you're not talking about some people in a forest who are you know, isolated from everything else. I mean, bottom-up, it, it just means that there's not a top-down, overly specified regulatory regime, but it, it emerges from the players in That are currently in the space of data, Uh, but you seem cautiously optimistic that this that a better direction can emerge.
1: That's right. I'm. I'm. um, Well, let's put it this way: I'm, I'm only cautiously optimistic in the short term. I'm very optimistic in the long term. This is just too good a thing to do. That human society will do it eventually because we will all recognize the importance of it. There's a journal, new journal called Data Intelligence that uh, I was involved in producing a special issue just recently. In fact, I think it just hit the uh, airwaves. Uh, And the article that I uh, uh, authored was entitled uh, Open Science and the Hype Cycle. Uh, The uh, consulting firm Gartner had created something they called the Hype Cycle, uh, some years ago that saying that many technologies go through uh, a peak of expectations and then a, uh, a decline into a valley of despair after they found out it wasn't a silver bullet to find all problems, solve all problems. but then for those technologies that really are going to uh, amount to something, we crime climb back up onto a uh, plateau of productivity. And I think we are at uh, a peak of expectations with open science right now. And I think we have a number of problems yet to be solved. And so I, I simply warn my colleagues that over the next decade or so, there might be periods of disappointment, disillusionment, because it didn't develop as rapidly as we thought. But I, I'm convinced that this is such an important development that it will occur over the long term and we will hit a, a plateau of productivity and that. That's stating it too mildly. I think in science's case, I think the, uh, the plateau we will hit may be a, a, as revolutionary as the original open science a decision in the uh, 17th century to uh, publish scientific articles. I think it's that important.
0: Well, I wanted to end on that note. Those are certainly big, uh, big thoughts and big developments. I, I would like to think that we are in that era. We certainly seem to be in an era where there's so much going on that uh, there suddenly is a job for people like me again who, who, a, who aim to kind of discuss the future. It, uh, it, it seemed to me like the last few decades, uh, people have all been futurists in that it's, it has almost seemed like we all knew what was coming and everyone was sort of like, a futurist would be out of a job because it was so simple to predict what would happen. But I think COVID conscience. and other things have reminded me and others that uh, the future isn't as easy to predict, neither the direction nor the speed. And, um, and that's a good reminder, I think.
1: The one thing that I think we can predict and futurists are going to be even more important in this regard, is that the rate of things will be, in 2100, things will be much more different from 2000 than 2000 was for 1900. That is, the 21st century will will be much greater developments and changes than the 20th century was, and we know the 20th century is the greatest changes in the history of mankind.
0: Yeah, those are those are incredible things to ponder, and I wanted to thank you so much for having uh, brought us along for this uh, journey—a personal journey through uh, science and uh, its future.
1: It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you. You have just listened to episode eighty-five of the Futurized podcast with host Ronan Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the origins and future of open science. In this conversation, we talked about the decisions that turned ARPANET into the global internet and the first ISP via educational institutions. We discussed the rise and fall and rise again of the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House, the role of the national academies in the U.S. and abroad, the path towards open science with open access and preprint servers, and why big science publishers resisted George mused on the role of science and data in the next decade. My takeaway is that the origins of open science and the internet were a combination of savvy futuristic planning and surprising twists and turns. The magnitude of the changes have been felt by all. The future of open science still looks open-ended, but the promise of bottom-up self-regulation is more alluring than the alternative, a regulatory grab to avoid damaging lock-in effects. Data is a new business model, but the holders of big data become the arbiters of human destiny. Can we achieve George's vision of one computer, one data set? The implications would be world-changing. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 84 on the path towards science 2.0. Episode 48, AI in Government, or Episode 29, Future of Computational Media. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.